From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Although heart disease may often be thought of as a problem for men, heart disease is the most common cause of death for both women and men in the United States. And certain times in a woman's life, like pregnancy and menopause, pose unique risks to the heart. Fortunately, women can take steps to understand and reduce their risk of heart disease. On today's program, we'll learn more about women's heart health during all stages of life from a Mayo Clinic expert. Also on the program, understanding gallbladder disease. What is it and how is it treated? And we'll learn about preventing the common problem of constipation. All that, along with this week's health and medical news, right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McCrae. A study published this summer in Mayo Clinic Proceedings found that the risk of having a heart attack while pregnant, while giving birth, or during the two months after delivery continues to increase for American women. Hmm. The study, led by NYU School of Medicine researchers, found that the risk of suffering a heart attack among pregnant women rose 25% from 2002 to 2014. Possible reasons for this increase include women having children later in life and more women being obese and or even diabetic, which are key risk factors for heart disease. And here to discuss is Mayo Clinic cardiologist, Dr. Sharon Hayes. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Hayes. It's nice to have you here. It's great to be here. Dr. Hayes, nice to see you. So these have to be alarming statistics, don't you think? So they're very alarming. If we think about in the U.S., we have a higher maternal mortality rate than most developed countries anyway, uh, for a lot of reasons. And then we look at the heart disease risk, which is my interest. Um, the fact that it is rising is concerning, largely because we believe that most cardiovascular disease and heart attacks can be prevented. So with the alarming, I think there are some action items that we need to be looking for as well. Is there a, a racial discrepancy here also? I mean, uh, is, are there more black women who have heart disease uh, during pregnancy and delivery than, than white women? So there's a con- there is a disparity, and the disparities have to do with race, particularly African-American women who have about triple the death rate overall for maternal mortality um, and an increase in, in cardiovascular mortality, but also just access and prenatal care. There's so many things that have to do with this that are both risk factors and age of the mother, but also things about our systems of care or lack thereof. Now, Tracy mentioned a couple of the possible reasons and diabetes, obesity. Uh, what, what, what would you say? Well, I think... It's clear that, and we've known this for a long time, is the older you are as a mother, the higher risk the pregnancy is, and the higher risk the mother is for having underlying heart disease to start the pregnancy. And so we're seeing older mothers. We're seeing people who are having children at ages that really they didn't have them before. And that is sort of that one of those high-risk groups that we could, which should look at. There's been a rate of rise in the risk factors, particularly obesity um, and diabetes, which are powerful and are not necessarily screened for and treated during pregnancy. So one of the other things we've learned is that overweight women can lose weight healthily during a pregnancy and have a healthier baby and a healthier them, but they have to be under the appropriate care. Is that because women in the U.S. are having babies later? 
part of it is the older age uh, of women in the U.S., but many of these countries, we're talking about Scandinavia mm-hmm. and Great Britain and others, um, that there was a quote uh, in in, from a UK comment where they were looking at maternal mortality, they said that actually the rate or risk of death of the unpregnant father is now greater than the pregnant woman in the UK. And we can't say that about hmm. the US. Wow, that's, so in, it's, that's interesting, isn't it? Yeah, that's pretty in powerful. The UK. And, and why do you think that is, their system compared to ours? You know, their system of care, their access to care. Every woman has a has a primary care doctor. Every woman is going to get the appropriate care. That's not true in the U.S. So uh, what should women do uh, before they become pregnant, particularly if they're obese or have diabetes? Well, I think they should see either their OB or their primary care doctor, if they have one, and to have some preconception planning. What does a healthy pregnancy look like? What are my risk factors? If I'm really overweight, am I, you know, in general, we don't advise those women to have the same 30-pound weight gain um, that uh, an individual who is normal weight would have. So what does a healthy pregnancy look like for me? And then monitoring through the pregnancy to make sure that we identify those individuals who develop hypertension, new hypertension during pregnancy or new diabetes during pregnancy. And importantly, and a slightly off topic, but definitely related, is individuals who during their pregnancy, women who during pregnancy develop hypertension or diabetes, even if it goes away after they deliver, are at higher risk for a heart attack throughout their entire life. And so that marks a woman who failed the stress test of pregnancy And we need to watch her. Maybe they need to see a cardiologist. Maybe they need lipid-lowering therapy or greater monitoring for their high blood pressure. So pregnancy is such an important time for women's health and baby's health, as well as her future heart health. How does pregnancy affect the heart? So a normal pregnancy, um, the woman's blood volume increases um, by about a third. So that means the heart has a lot of extra work. Um, blood pressure typically, actually in a normal pregnancy, goes down. Um, think about the uterus where the baby, it goes from a fist size um, organ to big enough to have a nine-pound baby mm-hmm. in it. So women actually have this ability to make new blood vessels. And uh, which uh, So when they prove that they can do that, that's a pretty healthy thing. If they have a preterm birth or a baby that doesn't develop fully because their placenta isn't healthy enough, those are all markers of risk for that pregnancy, but also future pregnancies and future heart disease in that woman. Based on the statistics that we talked about, you suggested that maybe there are some things that we ought to be doing differently. Well, I think that preconception planning is really good. Talking to what are the health risks that I have that I can correct before I even get pregnant? What medications am I on? What medications should I, if I'm on medications, what should I switch to? I think making sure that women recognize that heart disease that they are at risk for heart disease and so that they pay attention to symptoms. I mean, one of the areas, and it it was a sizable number of the individuals who suffered a heart attack after um, uh, birth in this study that was referenced at the beginning of the segment, um, had a condition called spontaneous coronary artery dissection. This is an area of interest of mine. This happens in people with healthy hearts, with healthy vessels, with no cholesterol or anything. It is... um, so there's nothing to prevent it, but you got to recognize the symptoms right away so you get in and get the appropriate treatment. So it's multi-level, it's pre, it's during, and making sure that we address the issues that arise, and then making sure that everyone on the team, including the patient, 
knows what the signs and symptoms are of heart disease. I think that's a great point because it's been a while. It's been a while since I was pregnant. But <laughs> the only <laughs> thing, the only thing that I thought about before we got pregnant was to start taking folic acid. That was the only pre-planning that we did at all. And even as someone who's got some heart issues, I didn't even think about heart health when it came to being one of the things I should be watching out for when I was pregnant. Exactly. Hmm. So the big issues are obesity, the increasing rates of diabetes, and women having children when they're older. Would you suggest that if, if you're thinking about having children, maybe you ought to think about it early on? Well, that's great to say in theory, because <laughs> in general, healthier pregnancies are going to be in, in a woman's 20s. On the other hand, the reality is um, women find partners later or whatever. So I would say to that older woman, the woman who is 30 or 35 and coming into their first pregnancy, is that is even paying more attention because that's also the age in which we're starting to see more risk factors. And so would it probably be healthier to have pregnancy at younger ages? Yes. But the reality is we're going to have older mothers and continue to do so. So making sure those older mothers are as healthy as can be. We've talked about pregnancy and the heart, but what about heart disease as women age, especially after menopause? Which leads us to our myth or matter of fact. More than one in three adult women has some form of cardiovascular disease. Oh, Dr. Hayes, is that a myth or a fact? <laughs> it would be a fact. Oh, boy. Is that a we, surprise for women when you talk about this? Absolutely. Yeah. And in that, in that statistic, we do include hypertension, which is uh, on the rise and increases with each year of age, particularly in women after menopause. Wasn't that a great segue? Uh-huh. <laughs> menopause. Just one of those things that, again, like we said with childbirth, uh, I didn't really consider what heart health, what impact that might have on my pregnancy. I wouldn't think about it, about uh, menopause relation, but of course it is. Well, it is, and probably it's better known, honestly, mm -hmm. because we have, as women age, they, they have gotten this boost, perhaps a protection compared to men of about 10 years. They get about a 10-year grace. They present with high blood pressure and heart attacks on average about 10 years later than men. Now, there are some exceptions to that because women who are, are diabetic, actually it eliminates all of that advantage. But, um, for instance, women's blood pressure tends to be lower than men up until about the age of menopause, around age 50. And then women's blood pressure starts going up, men's stays high, but it levels off. So it is a time in life that is both a change related to changes in hormones, but I think pointing out it's not an abrupt change, an abrupt uptick, but think about other things that happen to women around the uh, age 50, 51, which is the average age of menopause. Often they become empty nesters. They have changes in jobs, changes in physical activity. They get a bum knee or plantar fasciitis, and they get less active. There are a lot of things that come around that time that can confound and worsen and increase risk for cardiovascular disease. Oh, that's a special time in your life. <laughs> is it, uh, is, it's so is, freeing, though. It really is. I just feel free. Does estrogen help protect the heart? So, complicated question. Um, we believe so. Um, the endogenous or the estrogen that is in our bodies in, during the premenopausal state, we think that that is because there are estrogen receptors on every blood vessel in the body and it keeps women's blood vessels um, elastic and healthier. It's more complicated, though, in terms of, and I don't want any of the listeners to hear that, yes, oh, that means I should add estrogen back to protect my heart after menopause. 
So the Women's Health Initiative showed that at least in older women who were a few years past menopause, adding estrogen back didn't help them, didn't help their hearts. It may be, and this is the, the, the question, that continuing it at a low dose, if you've got an already healthy heart um, early after menopause, might be something. But the general rule is we don't recommend adding estrogen back after menopause to protect the heart at this point. So let's talk about the, just review the risk factors again. They're the same for, for men and women, mm-hmm. and they're the same risk factors essentially for erectile dysfunction and Alzheimer's disease, mm-hmm. interestingly. But uh, so diabetes, yes. obesity, high blood pressure, smoking, smoking, uh, sedentary lifestyle, lack of uh, activity, cholesterol. Yeah, cholesterol and triglycerides in women. So lipids as a whole, um, it, it um, the standard total cholesterol we've kind of moved away from and just saying, well, over 200, you have high cholesterol because you can have other factors in your uh, cholesterol that put you at higher risk. Um, Particularly for women, elevated triglycerides, um, which is another fat in the blood that is more influenced by dietary sugars um, and carbohydrates as opposed to fats and genetics. The other is where you put on your fat. Mm. So... Women. I don't like this part. <laughs> <laughs> so you can be normal weight, but if you have a fat distribution that is mainly in your middle and your waistline as opposed in your hips and thighs, for women and for men, that conveys an increased risk. And so when you start gaining weight, um, even going from normal weight to higher weight, which often happens as we get older, um, puts women at even higher risk. How important is activity, uh, especially postmenopause? So when people ask me, what's the most important thing I can do to prevent heart disease? If they're a smoker, that's number one. Number two is physical activity. And the reason I say that is there's such um, deep and broad, strong evidence that it makes an impact, not only for cardiovascular disease, but for Alzheimer's and for bones and for osteoporosis and for preventing falls and being strong. So physical activity is great. The other part is it's never too late to start physical activity. We actually have scientific studies that say that women who start a a walking program over the age of 65 actually reduce their risk of heart disease from the Nurses' Health Study. So it's free. It's not sexy, however. And it's a hard habit to adopt if Mm -hmm. you hate exercise, as some of my patients do. Do you feel like your patients are getting that message and are trying to become more active in midlife? So... I think women are so busy, and one of the things, so the the answer is yes, but. Okay. But I think getting back to why um, women don't take time to take care of themselves, women are raised and acculturated to be caregivers. They're moms. They are, you know, they're the group leaders. They're often, even if they're in the workforce, they're the moms at work. And, And so often when we ask women, even who've had a heart attack, why don't you make this change or eat healthy or exercise? I don't have time because I'm driving my kids. Um, my husband wouldn't eat that healthy food, so I'm just going to make it. And so flipping it so that they know that if they can do those things, they will accomplish those other goals, i.e. caregiving, um, and making it an altruistic thing, which can be very helpful. And that's been my biggest success in helping people frame it when I don't have time, because none of us have enough time to do these things. It's priorities. Mm-hmm. We've talked about uh, the, the major risk factors and how important it is to keep all of those under control, and exercise is extremely important. Let me ask you about a couple of other things with regard to heart disease prevention. 
uh, there's been some recent controversy, a baby aspirin a day. What's your feeling about that in women who don't have a history of heart disease? So that's an important distinction to make because nothing has changed in terms of our recommendations. If you've had a heart attack, a stent, or have uh, have had cardiovascular disease, you should be on a baby aspirin unless your doctor tells you otherwise. For individuals, male and female, particularly older individuals who are otherwise healthy, don't have diabetes, don't have other things, the risks of taking aspirin, and people don't think about that, they just, because it's non-prescription, are actually greater or outweigh or at least are equal to any benefit that one has. And that's stomach bleeding mainly. And stomach and other types of bleeding because it, it irritates the stomach, but also you can get bleeding into your brain. And women, in everything we do and every medication and every intervention in cardiology, women bleed more. So if it's a risk for men, it's a bigger risk for women. All right, fish oil. Uh, fish oil was very popular um, uh five or six years ago until we started actually having data from randomized clinical trials. So I I ask, if I have somebody come into my office and they're on fish oil, I ask, why are you taking them? Because there are other reasons than heart disease you might take fish oil. But I tell them to stop it. Really? Sh- yeah, because it's really not been shown to have any primary prevention benefit or really even secondary prevention. What if they don't like fish and they think, I don't like fish, so I'll just take fish oil tablets? So probably doesn't help. Okay. So that recommendations is eat fish a couple times a week. It's not harmful, right. but people who are also on blood thinners, it thins your. If you take high dose fish oil, it actually can thin your blood more. And I'm a less is more. I go through every patient's list and I say, "Why you're taking it? Why you're taking it? Why you're taking it?" And they say, "I don't know." I said, "Then ask the doctor who prescribed it, or <laughs> why are you buying it and spending your money on it if it's over the counter?" All right, we've been talking about heart health in women, both during the reproductive years and after menopause. With a specialist, cardiologist, Dr. Sharon Hayes. Dr. Hayes, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks. It was great. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, we'll learn about gallbladder disease and later on the show, how to prevent the all-too-common problem of constipation. Coming up, the latest health and medical news with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Hi, I'm Vivian Williams for the Mayo Clinic News Network. Lots of people can stand and drop a few pounds, but it's always harder to get the weight off than you expect, right? So when you hear about people losing a ton of weight over a short period of time on the latest low-carb diet craze, the keto diet, it sounds like the magic formula. Dr. Donald Hendrude, author of the Mayo Clinic Diet Book, says people want an easy way out. They want the magic panacea. But Dr. Hensrud says the keto diet isn't new, and it's not the magic formula people think it is. He says they've known for a long time that when you decrease carbohydrate intake markedly, the body starts to use fat. And when you burn fat, you produce ketones, and the body goes into ketosis. He says it will help you drop weight. The problem is what happens after most people lose the initial weight. Long-term, it's hard, he says. People miss fruits, different vegetables, grains... It's hard. It becomes a very restrictive diet. So although people lose weight initially, maintaining it and keeping it off long-term is a real challenge on a keto diet. Instead, Dr. Hensrud recommends focusing on a healthier lifestyle with exercise, portion control, and a diet with more fruits, veggies, and whole grains. You might not lose weight as quickly, but it will be healthier for your body long-term. And in other news, osteoporosis is softening of the bones, particularly as you age. It's often not diagnosed until a bone's broken, and by that time, the bones can already be quite weak. But there is a test you can take to determine if you have osteoporosis and calculate your risk of a fracture. 
A bone density test is the best way to find out if you have osteoporosis. Dr. Bart Clark says it measures bone loss and shows how strong the bones are, even if they haven't broken yet. He says if you've never had a fracture, screening guidelines call for your first bone density test at age 65 for women and 70 for men. Now, bone density testing is an X-ray test that takes probably 15 to 20 minutes to check both low back and hips, which are the standard sites to measure. These sites predict future risk of backbone fracture or hip fracture. He says if your bone density is normal, your next test won't be for another five to ten years. But if the test shows signs of osteoporosis, you should have it done annually. Having the bone density test and then maintaining good nutrition, including calcium and vitamin D, and staying physically active, are the things that you can do to protect yourself before you get to a point where medications needed. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives, and I'm Tracy McRae. Your gallbladder. It's a small pear-shaped organ on the right side of your abdomen, underneath your liver. You can't feel it. All right. <laughs> the gallbladder stores fluid called bile that is released into your small intestine to aid digestion. Inflammation of the gallbladder is known as cholecystitis, itis meaning inflammation, and it can be caused by several different things. Gallstones blocking the tube leading out of the gallbladder can result in the buildup of bile, which is a frequent cause of inflammation. Other causes of an inflamed gallbladder can include problems with the bile duct itself, tumors, which can sometimes be cancerous, and even certain infections. Here to discuss gallbladder disease is Mayo Clinic gastroenterologist Dr. Brett Peterson. Welcome to the program, Dr. Peterson. It's nice to meet you. Thank you very much. It's a, a pleasure to be here with you. Tell us a little bit about the gallbladder. Where it is, what it does. Well, the gallbladder is a recipient for bile coming out of the liver during periods of fasting, and it expands. and And the bile made by the liver, which is being made all day long, is stored there and concentrated. A lot of water is sucked out of bile while it's there. So uh, when you eat a meal, the gallbladder squeezes a muscle at the bottom of the duct. Uh, Relaxes and bile that's now very concentrated is expelled into the intestine to mix with your food for digestion. What tells it to squeeze?、Uh, there's a hormonal stimulus, and when food and thought、uh, are accompanied at the time of a meal, the,、uh, and food arriving in the duodenum tells it to squeeze. The duodenum is that little portion coming right out of the stomach. That's right, the upper small intestine. What do you do if you don't have a gallbladder? Because if <laughs> People have problems with it, and it's removed. Then what do they do? So、um, the gallbladder's the most、uh, removal of the gallbladder's the most common operation in America today.、Uh, Is that right?、Much. And so even over appendix, it's, it's a, yes, it's very very common to live without a gallbladder, perfectly、uh, healthy lives. The bile that's important for digestion then resides in part、uh, in the bile duct during fasting. And in part, it just、uh, rests and is present within the entire length of the small bowel. The bile that's secreted and is in the small bowel is recycled by reabsorption in the lower small bowel, and comes back through the bloodstream to the liver and goes through multiple cycles, losing just a little bit with each cycle into the large intestine. You know, it used to be when people would have their gallbladder out. I remember when I was a kid. Uh, they would be in the hospital for two weeks. There would be a big incision. You remember the picture of Lyndon Baines Johnson showing、sure. his gallbladder scar, and it seemed to me like people who had had their gallbladder out had to change their diet. But that's not true anymore, is it? Not particularly. 
No, that's correct. Digestion works fine with without the gallbladder. The bile is still active and still functioning the way it should. The major consequence long-term of having your gallbladder out is a small proportion of patients develop uh, chronic diarrhea, maybe 2 or 3%, which is easily uh, managed with agents that bind the bile that's spilling into the colon. So it's the it's the bile in the colon that causes the diarrhea? And, yeah. and, what, and just a small percentage of people, though. Uh, in a small percentage, it's irritating and uh, stimulates, uh, see, uh, it uh, inhibits, it irritates the colon and inhibits absorption of the fluids in the intestines. So most folks, uh, if they have a little bit of softening, uh, it's, uh, don't appreciate it as a, as a major consequence, but this small percentage has enough diarrhea to require some intervention. But that's easily managed and a modest issue. What most commonly goes wrong with the gallbladder? Well, most patients uh, who develop gallstones, which are underlie most problems in the gallbladder, uh, are asymptomatic, and most stones don't cause problems. If we look at uh, the entire population, somewhere around uh, 5 to 8% of men will develop gallstones, somewhere around 10 to 15% of women, so about twice as often in women, and 80% of those who do develop them are asymptomatic. We sometimes find them unexpectedly when looking for other things, but we just leave them alone and they do fine. Somewhere around 20% of patients will develop pain, we call biliary colic, and this is a a very typical pain that comes on fairly abruptly over 5 to 15 minutes, sticks around for a prolonged interval of a half hour to several hours before resolving somewhat gradually. So biliary colic, however can then recur if it's developed once. So that's when we start to entertain intervention. A small portion of patients who've had biliary colic will go on to develop more serious complications of cholecystitis, where the pain persists, the gallbladder is very inflamed, and removing it is um, less elective and more urgent. So I want to ask you about the risk factors for developing uh, gallstones. When I was in medical school, it was female, fat, 40, and fertile. Now, I don't know if you can still say that. Maybe they've changed the words, but is that still true? That's still true. (coughs) Women develop gallstones twice as often as men because of their milieu of estrogen and progestins in the bloodstream. We know that uh, certain ethnic groups develop uh, gallstones much more often. American uh, Indians, Native Americans, are the probably the highest prevalence of gallstones. Hispanic populations fairly high. Caucasians below that, and and African Americans uh, less than that even. So um, uh, ethnicity is important. Family history is very important. Probably a twofold or threefold increase in, in likelihood of forming stones. Uh, overweight states, especially with the BMI over 30, the risk of gallstones is quite a bit higher, um, and multiple others that are gradually less important. Fertility, the, the uh, fertile part, uh, having a pregnancy is a, a high-risk factor for developing stones or gallbladder sludge, a precursor to stones. Uh, sludge often resolves after a pregnancy, and stones tend to stick around. So if someone's had multiple pregnancies, their likelihood of stones is much higher. Is this mostly diagnosed because there's pain present? Is that what brings patients in? So most gallstones probably go undiagnosed, Um, but the uh, patients have all variety of symptoms that may or may not be related to stones. 
and then they're usually fairly easily diagnosed by ultrasound. So identification of stones is generally straightforward, except a small proportion with tiny, tiny stones. Um, but then the attribution of symptoms to the stones is sometimes a much more difficult issue. I can tell you that there are outliers, and I am one of them. <coughs> Female, fat, 40, and fertile, and none you. of them, and I have my gallbladder out. And the, the pain is extreme. Uh, in fact, I was in the emergency room three times with the same similar pain, and since I don't fit the bill for having gallbladder disease, it took them a while to figure that out. But the good thing is you can take it out through the laparoscope. It's right. relatively simple, straightforward surgery. You're in, what, overnight, and uh, really, I didn't have to change my diet at all. So the, the surgery is absolutely remarkable. Are there other treatment options besides surgery? <laughs> well, other options have been developed uh, over many, many years, but with the advent of laparoscopic approaches to surgery, um, many of the other options became less realistic, uh, less cost-effective, um, less, they're less effective uh, themselves. So cholecystectomy is really the only realistic option for the patient who can undergo surgery as a surgical candidate. All right, Dr. Brett Peterson, gastroenterologist, talking about gallbladder disease. Thanks so much for being with us. All right, thank you. Constipation is the most common digestive complaint in the U.S. population. Every year, chronic constipation leads to around 2.5 million doctor visits and medication costs that are in the many hundreds of millions of dollars. Now, occasional constipation is common, but some people experience chronic constipation. It doesn't get any better. And it's a problem that can interfere with activities of daily living. It can actually make your life miserable. You feel bloated, headachy, irritable. Bad problem. Yeah, chronic constipation may also cause excessive straining to have a bowel movement, which can lead to hemorrhoids, anal fissures, and other problems. Treatment for chronic constipation depends in part on the underlying cause, and there are steps you can take to help prevent constipation. Here to discuss constipation is Mayo Clinic gastroenterologist, Dr. Jean Fox. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Fox. Thank you. Good to be here, Tracy. Good morning. Thanks, Dr. Fox, for being here. I know you're busy because this is such a common problem. And I think the first question is, what is constipation? How do you, an expert, define it? Well, constipation means different things to different people. As, as you two have already touched upon, Tom, constipation can mean straining to have a stool, it can mean infrequent stools, hard stools. It can mean a sense of incomplete evacuation. So a lot of times when I'm visiting with a patient, I try to get right to what they're experiencing rather than using the broad term. In our motility clinic here, we actually use a bowel symptom questionnaire that helps us to get to those very specific points to see exactly what somebody's having trouble with. What is the cause of constipation? Well, there are lots of different causes. One of the most common causes can be diet, either, you know, eating a very low-residue diet or a very processed diet. What do you mean by low-residue? Some more processed foods, okay. kind of fast foods, um, you know, that white squishy bread that we all loved as children. Wonder Bread. <laughs> yeah, that's not so good for our digestive system. The other thing is skipping meals. So people who are skipping meals don't experience uh, what we call a gastrocolic reflex, which is a reflex where when your stomach is distended by food, your colon contracts, and that makes your colon want to empty. So people who are frequently skipping meals 
can have issues with constipation as well. Hmm. Another real big one is not drinking enough fluids or not drinking the right fluids. And sometimes, um, particularly with my older male patients who may not want to be disturbed and have to get up at night, they may be really limiting their fluid intake, and then that can cause difficulty with their digestive system and lead to constipation. Best laid plans on that one. Yes. And another one is medications. Mm -hmm. So whenever I visit with somebody in the clinic who's experiencing difficulty with constipation, we go through their medication list. And some of the um, medications that can be really quite constipating are anything in the opioid pain medication family, and then certain medications that we use for blood pressure control, particularly calcium channel blockers, can sometimes cause difficulty with constipation. What, so, sorry, what, what's an example of a calcium channel blocker? Procardia, procardia, nifedipine. For some people, those things can be constipating. The other big class of medications that can be constipating are some of the medications that are used to treat psychiatric disorders mm-hmm. like anxiety or depression or schizophrenia. Mm-hmm. And so we always look at the medication list, um, not to say that we should be stopping those medications. Sometimes those medications cannot be stopped and should not be stopped, but we can partner with the primary care doctor or the psychiatrist or the cardiologist and the patient to come up with a plan that's going to work for them. Why is it that constipation seems to be more common as we age? Yes, there are several reasons. One is as we age, we tend to be on medication as they get older that they may not be on when they're younger. The other thing that I I meant to touch upon, and thanks for reminding me, is more sedentary lifestyle. So if you're not as physically active, that also has adverse uh, effects on your digestion. So, you know, if we're less active as we age, people particularly spending a lot of time sitting that can lead to more difficulties with constipation. So how do we help these people? Yes. So I generally approach things in multiple areas. We always talk about the importance of diet, getting dietary fiber, and we'd really like people to get in the range of 28 to 30 grams a day. Most people in the United States probably get 12 to 15 mm. grams a day, so not as much fiber as I we have. need to. Yeah, so it's it's a that's a struggle, but with a conscious effort that can happen. The other thing is making sure that they are staying hydrated and choosing fluids that such as water that are going to help with your digestion instead of things that act more as a diuretic and make you urinate, such as the caffeinated beverages make you urinate more. So a little caffeine is good. It can stimulate your bowels um, and cause some colonic contraction and help with emptying. But a lot of caffeine will have a diuretic effect and you will urinate more and there will be less fluid available for your digestive systems. So the first thing is to talk about diet and hydration. And then I talk about sleep-wake cycles because our colon is at its most active in the morning when we wake up, just like we have our sleep-wake cycles as part of our circadian rhythms. Our bowels have a similar rhythm, and your colon is at its most active in the morning, and that's why most people will have a bowel movement in the morning. What can be done to accentuate that? Eating a meal. 
So I talk to people about their diet and I say, do not skip breakfast. Breakfast is the most, really, truly is the most important meal for people who are struggling with bowel problems. Another reason why breakfast is so important. Yes, and so (laughs) we talk about that. And then I will talk about medications. And in general, we'll usually start with an over-the-counter laxative such as just plain old magnesium salts can be very helpful, which you can get over the counter. And then we might talk about the occasional use, if necessary, of a stimulant laxative like bisacodyl or uh, the use of an enema, depending on what somebody's needs are. So we kind of step it up. But the first thing I really like to get at is diet, physical activity, staying hydrated. And if you don't, certainly you're uncomfortable, but what can happen if you don't address chronic constipation? Yes, so certainly you're uncomfortable and a lot of people experience pain and bloating and sometimes even nausea and upper GI symptoms. Um, People who have reflux, your reflux symptoms can get worse if your constipation is poorly controlled and so that can lead to a lot of distress. But as you touched upon, there can be problems with the pelvic floor like hemorrhoids, uh, which can be painful. They can bleed. They can also get thrombosed, which is a very painful condition Mm -hmm. and requires surgery. Um, There can also be from straining the development of anal fissures, which, again, can be be a very painful Little cracks in the anus. Yes, a little crack or tear in the anal canal, which can be very, very uncomfortable and can take weeks to even sometimes a couple of months to heal. Um, We also worry about, with excessive straining, symptoms of pelvic organ prolapse in women. So that's Um, where either the bladder or the rectum actually come outside the body. Well, they may not necessarily come outside the body. Coming outside the body is the worst-case scenario. That's a full prolapse. But sometimes things can prolapse or herniate and still be inside the body, but but yet cause problems with pressure or a feeling of incomplete bladder emptying, those types of things. So none of that sounds very good. No. So the things to do before you may need to try laxatives or other medications are 28 to 30 grams of fiber per day, critical. Hydrate, exercise, and don't skip breakfast. Absolutely. All right, we've been talking about chronic constipation with Mayo Clinic gastroenterologist Dr. Jean Fox. Dr. Fox, thanks so much for being with us. So nice to be with you both. And that's our program for this week. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for joining us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, radio.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.